This is the message given by Pastor James Lim during the evening worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for January 28, 2024. The title of the message is, In the Lord I Take Refuge. If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Psalm 11? We're taking a, a little break from our normal series through the evening and just taking some select psalms. Last week we looked at Psalm 10, and tonight we'll be looking at Psalm 11. Hear now the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. To the choir master of David, in the Lord, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The grass withers and the flower fade, but the word of our God stands forever. There is nothing as unnerving as a 6.7 magnitude earthquake at 4.30 in the morning. I remember the, North, the Northridge earthquake when I was young, and I remember the walls of our house shaking uh, as if it was just made of cardboard. Like it, it, it looked like a house of cards, and it was about to fall like a house of cards. Uh, and when I got out of bed and put my feet on the ground, it, it felt like uh, I couldn't, uh, have, I couldn't really stand. I, f- I felt like I was going to fall because the ground was moving uh, underneath me. Um, trees toppled over, freeways collapsed, buildings turned into rubble, uh, and it felt like uh, the world was falling apart. And, and so the question that I ask myself, and I'm sure you know, some of you have during some of the earthquakes that we've gone through, is what do you do when the world falls apart? Right, what goes through your mind? What's the first thing that you think of? What's the, where do you run to for safety? Uh, how do you cope uh, in the midst of, of that kind of shaking and shattering? Those things that you thought would be secure, the, the, the ground underneath your feet um, is gone. What do you do when the whole world seems to be falling apart? Uh, this evening, the psalmist helps God's people to think about that question, to consider what to do when the, when the world falls apart. 
That's what we see there in verse 3, right? If the foundations are destroyed, the foundations of whatever it is that we find some modicum of security in our lives, when that falls apart, when that is destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that's what I want us to consider. That's what the psalmist uh, is showing us. So what do you do when it feels like the world is falling apart and falling in upon you? The psalmist tells us first, you trust in the Lord and you take refuge in him. Now, we're not sure of the historical circumstances here in David's life, but something bad's happening, right? Uh, Look at verse 2 and 3. He is describing the circumstances uh, around him, beginning in the first first half of verse 1 there, all the way down to 3. Something bad is going on, but notice the very first words that come to his mind. In the Lord I take refuge. You see, he begins uh, in his thoughts and in his words, and most likely also in his actions, to trust in the Lord and to take refuge in him. That's the very first thing he does. See, this is a lesson, friends, brothers and sisters, that we all need to learn. No matter how much trouble we get into or the danger that we find ourselves in, what is the first thing we do? What is the first thing we do? Do we go to the Lord to take refuge in him or do we go to something else? Is he the first thought that comes to my mind, our minds, or, or does something else uh, occupy Is our action uh, to trust in him and to find refuge in him? Or do we do something else? See, what the psalmist is doing here is he's going to the Lord first and not to himself. As if he was strong enough or powerful enough to fight off whatever disaster comes his way. Uh, He doesn't look to others Uh, for security and safety, as if they can keep him from harm. Not in anything else does the psalmist look to, but God. In the Lord, I take refuge. This means uh, that, um, you know, when we put our faith in him, we we need to really put our faith in him. Not not half-heartedly, not as an add-on to our lifestyle and the way that we look at the world, you know, as if we build for ourselves a suit of armor, our our money, our, our resources, our reputation, our intellect, our looks... Uh, our jobs, and we know we kind of try to cover ourselves with protective gear. And then we have a little missing piece maybe somewhere on our body. And we say, oh, well, faith in God. And we'll just put it right here. And it'll just be one piece among others that we look to for protection. Uh, that is not what the psalmist is doing here. And that is not the way that we ought to put our faith in Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, he becomes the whole armor. Uh, We put on the whole armor of God. Not uh, Not as one of many. He's not just another bolt 
on the door to keep us safe. He is our refuge. He is our walled fortress. He is our rock and our shield. And so when you find yourselves in trouble or surrounded by enemies, as we see in verse 2 and 3, run straight to him. During those earthquakes, uh, um, the earthquake drills, I don't know if you, you, had, you grew up uh, doing earthquake drills, uh, but I remember in, in the 70s and the 80s, our teacher would tell us, you know, stop, drop, and find the most secure object that you can go under, right? The most secure object. And that is not any different for the Christian during the earthquakes in our lives. And what is the most secure object that we can hide ourselves under? It is the Lord, right? And not just an object, not, he's not an object, but a person, the very God of heaven and earth in whom we can find our greatest security if we would hide ourselves under him and take refuge in him. And how do we do that? We trust him. We trust him. That's what David is doing here. He goes on to give us the context of why he takes refuge in the Lord. When others tell him to flee in fear, that's what verse, uh, the second half of verse two is, that he, someone is telling him, you know, that enemies are coming to get him and so you need to run, right? Or maybe this is even, he's speaking to his own soul, right? There's precedence in scripture where David speaks to himself, you know, um, oh, oh, praise the Lord, oh, my soul, right? In the midst of his uh, darkness and despair, he, he, he speaks to himself, and maybe that's what he's doing here. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? And so what, look at what he flees to. See, see, what we see here is his statement of faith in the Lord I take refuge, and then the rest of the verses are what he doesn't take refuge in, what he's tempted to take refuge in, or what others have told him to take refuge in, but what he will not take refuge in. And it speaks to, to the temptations that we have. Look at what he says there. Flee like a bird to your mountain, right? I think he is, somebody is telling him to flee to the fortress that he has set up that he thinks will protect him. And, uh, and David's saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and so we all, and what this teaches us is that we all, in the midst of our, the dangers or the trials of our lives, we want to flee to our mountains, to those secure places that we think will keep us safe? What are they? What are the things in your life when the ground underneath your feet shakes, the world seems to be wobbly and falling in? Where do you flee to? What is your mound? Do you flee to your money? To your job? Uh, to a person, a, fam you're a, a member of your family? Uh, to your reputation, whatever it is that you look to for safety, um, it is not the Lord. And that's what we call an idol. 
or a functional savior that really is no savior at all. And so the Jews learned this when the Romans came to invade and the walls, when the Romans and the Babylonians, when the walls of Jerusalem failed them, when the walls and the fortress of Megiddo failed them, man-made walls, man-made mountains in which we take our refuge will always fail. And we ought not to be surprised. Why? Because the first thing we ought to do is to put our, uh, find our refuge in the Lord who is impenetrable, insurmountable, absolutely secure. Uh, Psalm 146 says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Psalm 20, verse seven, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Uh, when, so when things are, when, when dangers come our way, we put our trust in the Lord rather than fleeing to our functional saviors. Or when we are in the crosshairs of those who would do us harm, those who would hate us, those who would oppress us and persecute us, uh, look at what, what the psalmist call, uh, uh, says is going to happen. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the, to the sting uh, to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And so even when people are gunning for you, uh, find your refuge in the Lord. Um, and even if the foundations, right, whatever the foundations are, and a lot of people, a lot of uh, interpreters will, will say the foundations uh, of security, the foundations of a society, the foundations of a nation, um, are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, when the very fabric of, the, of society in which God's people find themselves, when even that falls apart, all legal protections, all cultural protections, all civil protections, when it all falls apart, as it did in the time of the judges, um, when, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, when the very fabric of society is falling apart. What, what do you do? In the Lord, the psalmist says, I take refuge. Even when you find yourself uh, completely alone and isolated and vulnerable to the whims of evil uh, and, and of the criminal element around you, in the Lord, you can take refuge. And this is what God's people have always done. When God pulls back his restraining grace, common grace, and society falls apart even at the foundations. Uh, so what did God's people do? They trusted in him, took refuge in him. And this is what God calls us to do even our, in our own day and age. right? I think, I think we are, every, every, Every period of, uh, in time, every age uh, throughout the, the history of the world, it, it does seem like the foundations of society are falling apart. Uh, and sometimes it's ebb and flows. Some are greater, some are lesser. But this is, I think this is uh, what's going on, I think, in some areas of our own culture, that even the basic foundations of morality, what is right and wrong, good and evil, 
are totally turned upside down. When good is seen as evil and evil is seen as good, what do we do? Well, we can't run away. We can't bury our heads in the sand and hide. What do we do? We trust in the Lord and take refuge in him. And sometimes I think in, in dark times uh, as that we find ourselves in, um, that in the end, I think in some ways, that's all you can do. I think that's all you can do because there's nothing else. And it, so in some ways, I think that's the challenge of our current moment is uh, all the things that Christians and, and kind of uh, cultural Christianity had kind of find, found some security in, uh, they no longer find. And so it forces us to, to trust in the Lord in ways that we have not in the past, to preserve and to propagate his word, his gospel, and the kingdom of God in the world. And so we follow his word like a lamp in the darkness, like a compass showing us north from south, uh, left from right, good from evil. And so what should we tell ourselves in light of the chaos and disintegration of the fabric of society that surrounds us? And this brings us to my second point. We trust in the Lord because he rules and reigns over all. If you look at verse four through six, the psalmist is reminding himself of what's really going on in the world. Do you see that? We can't just look at our circumstances, verse one through three. We have to see the truth of the reality of God's existence and his sovereignty over all. We have to open the eyes of our hearts to walk by faith, not by sight and see what's really going on around us. This, this reminds us of uh, 2 Kings 6, uh, when Elisha uh, and his servant are in Jerusalem, and they're surrounded by the Arameans. They're, they have mass armies of chariots and, and armies and horses. And the servant says to Elijah, you know, what are we going to do? He sees this, this massive Aramean army surrounding him. He says, what do we do? And Elisha, Elisha says, he... Uh, uh, we, our numbers are greater than their numbers. And then he prays to the Lord, would you, would you open the eyes of your servant to see what's really going on? And, and then the, that servant's eyes are opened. And all of a sudden he sees the armies of the hosts of heaven, the chariots of fire, the angels, the horses, and they're surrounding uh, on the mountains, surrounding even the Aramean armies. And that's the, the, the reality, the invisible reality that faith uh, ought to show us. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's showing us that the Lord reigns over all in the glory of heaven. Look at verse four. He's in his holy temple and sits upon his throne. And from there... He sees everything and he tests the children of man. And so when we're in danger, you know, all we see is the danger right in front of our eyes. But we need to step back and see the whole picture that God sits and reigns on heaven. He looks down and he knows exactly what's going on. He sees everything with the eyes of righteousness, that God is with us. And if he's with us, who can be against us? Um, 
And, and sometimes he may not act and do what we want him to do at any given moment. But he's, he sees what's going on and he's going to act in his good time. And that's the challenge of faith, isn't it? That uh, to wait patiently for the Lord to act in his time to do what, what he sovereignly wills rather than what we would want him to do. But uh, friends, brothers and sisters, um, the Lord reigns over all in your life. When it feels like you're powerless and you're surrounded by enemies, you're hemmed in, a, you're cornered, uh, and you have no place to go, you are never alone. I love that, that, that hymn, that movie uh, that came, along, came out with that hymn, is that um, uh, though we are alone, we are never alone. And that's what the psalmist is telling us here. He not only reigns over all, but he reigns in righteousness. When we trust in the Lord, we're trusting in him to see uh, what the wicked are doing. Look at verse five there, what the wicked are doing, and he is going to act. Look at verse five, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And, and, and that, the idea here of, in verse 5 of testing the righteous, I think has, uh, it, in the Hebrew, it, 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 I think the better sense is that he, he proves the righteous. He, in other words, he's refining the righteous. Uh, he is purifying the righteous in the midst of these trials in the midst of these circumstances. And so he's going to bring justice in, in that situation. And uh, he hates the wicked and he's going to consume them with fire and sulfur. The point, the point here in, in these two verses is this, that we have to remember that God is the righteous judge of all the universe and that he will not let the wicked prosper forever. And so when it seems like they're prospering, they won't in the end, uh, and that we can trust in his justice to come. Uh, if it comes in our lifetime, great. But if not, it will come on judgment day. But it will come, and we can, we can rest in that. We can find peace in that. And so he's going to punish the wicked who are oppressing uh, and, and killing uh, the, the people of God, the righteous of God. We saw last week in Psalm 10 that, uh, that if God is there or if he cares, um, when the wicked prosper, uh, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. That God is with us and he does love us. Uh, the other uh, aspect of, of these two verses is um, this is an Old Testament. I think it's an Old Testament apologetic for the just punishment of the wicked um, at, with that imagery of, of, of fire and sulfur uh, being poured out as a, as a, a punishment uh, to the wicked. And some would say that uh, 
God is, is, is uh, that Christianity uh, makes God unjust when he punishes the wicked. And that's not true. Uh, think about it this way. Uh, I don't think we, 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 we uh, think about this enough as an apologetic for the doctrine of hell is that if there's no just punishment for the wicked and for the evil that they commit, then how could God be just if there's no hell? Or how can there be justice at all if there's no punishment for the, for the evil that people commit in this life? You know, we think hell pushes against our modern Western values of tolerance and non-judgmentalism. But uh, I would argue, uh, along with Miroslav Wolf, a professor of systematic theology at Yale, that it's more unjust to say that there's no hell. The Bible says clearly that God is just and he punishes evil, and hell is the just penalty and punishment for that sin and evil. So if there is no end-time judgment, if there is no hell, then people will get away with all the evil that they've committed. Uh, in this lifetime if they haven't been punished for it. Hitler will never pay for his genocide of six million Jews. And he, you know, he killed himself, so he got away with it from, in some ways, if people uh, say that there's no hell. Stalin uh, or Mao will never pay for uh, the systematic uh, killing and starvation of millions and millions of people under communism. But if you go to someone who's experienced injustice, oppression, and suffering, if you try to tell them that there is no such thing as hell, uh, they will push back and they will shoot back at you. Um, that hell, in many ways, is a doctrine that ought to bring, and this is kind of an interesting way to put it, but it ought to bring great comfort to the people of God as the foundation for justice, for peacemaking, and nonviolence. Miroslav Wolf summarizes it this way. He says this, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, and it will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. But in a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Uh, that's just a long way of saying that um, a God who does not punish evil is not a God worthy to be worshipped. But because of the doctrine of hell and God's eternal justice, we don't need to fight back. We can turn the other cheek because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
Do you see that? So it actually lends itself to more violence if God isn't just because of the doctrine of hell. That the only way anybody can get justice in this life is if they put it, take it into their own hands and make it an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I, I like how Martin Luther King Jr. said it, you know, then we're all blind and we're all toothless. But because God has, uh, the vengeance is, is his at the end, we don't have to fight back. And we can end the cycle of violence by turning the other cheek to forgiving and loving and forgiving our enemies, just as Jesus did. And finally, we trust in the Lord because he is our refuge and he reigns over all. And finally, because he is, he is righteous. He is righteous. And now the psalmist here tells, tells us why we can trust in the Lord and take refuge in him even when the world seems to fall apart. Look at verse 7. Right? I, in the Lord I take refuge, and then he tells us why, and then he tells us that the invisible reality of God's sovereignty in verses 4 through 6. And then he kind of brings it all to it, and he says, we can trust in the Lord. We can take refuge in him because, verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. See, at the heart of the psalmist's faith is that God is righteous, not only morally or in his character, although he is that, but because the Lord is righteous in all that he does. He is always right. He is always just. So if that's who he is and that's what he does, then we can trust him to do the righteous thing for us and in us and through us at any given moment. And so we can have nothing, to, so we have nothing to fear. And this is why I think David uh, could be, uh, you can probably apply this to David's own experience when he killed Goliath. That he is a boy taking on a giant and everyone's telling him to run away but he knows the Lord is righteous and he's not going to let Goliath get away with mocking and taunting the Lord. So by faith, God used David to kill Goliath. And so when the psalmist reminds us, what the psalmist reminds us today is that we can trust and take refuge in the Lord because he reigns in righteousness. And when we trust in the Lord, our faith uh, is counted as righteousness so that we, um, so that the righteous can live by faith. And like Abraham, if we believe God, it will be counted to us as righteousness. And so it is through that righteousness that we receive then, if you look at the end of verse seven, and we behold the face of God. This is the promise of the gospel that through faith we are righteous in God's sight. And when we are righteous in God's sight, we can enter into his presence. And he loves the righteous deeds, not that we have done, but the deeds that Jesus has done, the righteous one given to us, imputed to us, as if we had done it. And clothed in the righteous deeds and the righteousness of Christ, we can enter into the presence of God and behold his face, 
For now, it's by faith in the face of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. But on that day, when Jesus shall return, the new heavens and the new earth will come down, that God himself will be the very son of the new Jerusalem. We can behold his face in glory so that our faith shall be a sight. And all because through faith in Jesus Christ, we are righteous. And it, it is then in this Lord that we can take refuge in, whatever our circumstances might be. Not as the second or third choice, but as the first. Go to him first and remember that he reigns in righteousness. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for thank you for the faith that you give to us. We thank you for the righteousness that we receive from you. Lord, help us then to take refuge in you, whatever our circumstances. And one day we look forward to beholding your face in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.